The cost of housing increased dramatically through the pandemic. Politicians of all stripes are proposing a wide variety of remedies to the problem, but the most common one seems to be build more houses. Ontario's Housing Affordability Task Force and the main Ontario political parties all seem to agree we need 1.5 million net new homes by 2031. We're going to get into how they came up with that number, whether we can actually build that many, and why this topic matters to business in today's Eastern Ontario Business Journal podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Phil Godreau. If you like this show, make sure to like and subscribe to be notified when new episodes are available. Today, we're welcoming three guests to help us unpack our housing questions. First, we'll be joined by Mike Moffat, Senior Director, Policy and Innovation, Smart Prosperity Institute, and Professor at Western University. Mike's the author, uh, lead author, of a recently released report with a very straightforward title, Ontario's Need for 1.5 Million More Homes. Check the show notes for the link to that one if you haven't read it yet. Of course, acknowledging the need is only the beginning. We've actually got to build the homes. So we're going to talk to Ian Arthur, CEO of Nidus 3D, a company that is printing uh, 3D printing homes in eastern Ontario. Ian's also the former MPP, Kingston, and the Islands. Lastly, we'll take the temperature of industry with Andy Coburn, president of the Lanark Leeds Home Builders Association and a carpenter. I'm going to get Andy's take on whether his region is ready for 14,000 more homes. But first up, we've got Mike Moffat. Hi, Mike. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing well, doing well. Sun is shining, life is good. So uh, there's a few competing estimates about the number of houses needed in Ontario. And I think uh, I think your report was designed to help break down some of those differences. Um, so could you tell us a bit about how these estimates are created and, and where the differences occur? Well, I think part of the problem is we actually don't know much of the time how these uh, estimates are created. So as you mentioned in the beginning, the uh, Ontario Housing Task Force came up with this 1.5 million number, which essentially came out of nowhere. And uh, despite no indication of where this came from, it was adopted not just by the provincial government, but by all uh, opposition parties as well. So we decided to, to test this and actually give some transparency and see, okay, does this number make sense? So what we did is we looked at Ontario Ministry of Finance population projections. Basically, how large is the population growing, going to grow over the next 10 years? And what's important is not just how much is going to grow, but where are people coming from? What ages of the population are we going to have? Just because the housing needs of a newborn are different than the housing needs of a 30-year-old versus an 80-year-old. So basically what we did is we, we took those population projections, broke them down by not just age, but by region, and figured out, okay, well, given how big the population is, is growing, how many homes are, are we going to need over the next little while? And much to our shock, we landed at exactly, almost exactly 1.5 million. It was like 1.51. In fact, I thought we had made a mistake somewhere. We had a giant Excel sheet to cancel all of this. I thought we had made a mistake because we got so close to the to provincial estimate. But at a high level, that's essentially what we're doing is we're trying to figure out how quickly the population is going to grow. Is it growing by births? Is it growing by, by immigration? You know, how many people are unfortunately going to pass away? You know, add all of that to a blender and we can kind of figure out, okay, what is our, what is our housing needs over the next decade? And, you know, you, as you mentioned, you broke this down by region. Um, so some regions need more, some need less. Uh, Ottawa needs somewhere around 100,000. Um, 
I'm wondering how the increase in remote work uh, since the advent of the pandemic uh, plays into that forecast. Um, is that going to blunt or shift some of the growth for the major population areas? Uh, it seems like no. Well, it, it could. And it's one of the big sort of known unknowns. I think we're all sort of aware of that, uh, you know, of that shift towards work from home. But I, I think we don't know how much that's going to pick up. So the Ontario Ministry of Finance has tried to include that a little bit in their population uh, projections. I would suggest that that if work from home persists and ends, ends up being larger than um, we think it might be. I think we are going to see a shift outside of the GTA into other parts of the province. And for Eastern Ontario in general, it's actually not clear whether or not they will gain more, you know, more population or less population. Because, you know, while the city of Ottawa is more expensive than other cities, it's still more affordable than the GTA. And you get a lot of the sort of advantages of being in a large city. You've got a CFL team, you've got an NHL team and so on. I think the other sort of big unknown or uh, known unknown for the Ottawa region is uh, the federal government's uh, return to, to work policies, as they are uh, one of our, our largest employers in, in Ottawa. So uh, depending on where that lands, you know, that could uh, determine, you know, how many people want to live in the Ottawa area. But in general, uh, a shift towards more work from home will cause more population growth in smaller centers and less population growth in the GTA. So that 1.5 million target uh, seems fairly lofty, at least to, uh, you know, myself, I've never built a home, so uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't know where to start. But um, what do you think are going to be some of the causes if we, if we miss that target and maybe some of the consequences? Well, absolutely. So it is a lofty target. So, you know, to put it in context, uh, the previous decade, we'd built about 750,000. So it's basically just doubling uh, what we've done before. So there's a lot of bottlenecks to that. Like some uh, some of them are just regulatory, right? Having uh, you know having zone the, the zoning rules, parking minimums, you know uh, having uh, approvals happen quickly enough. There's a lot of regulatory bottlenecks preventing us from 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 getting there. And I, I would say that would be the largest one. But even if we could somehow wave a magic wand and do that overnight. I still don't think we're going to be able to hit 1.5 million by just doubling everything the way we're, we're doing things now. I, I think we would, you know, quickly run into uh, shortages of labor, shortages of materials, um, and so on. So I think we have to find ways to become more productive, more innovative, introduce more technology, because we can't, I don't think it's realistic to double, you know, the, the number of, of home builders and, and people in the construction industry. So I, I definitely think you have uh, a regulatory bottlenecks, you have labor bottlenecks, you probably have some financing bottlenecks as well. And we need, uh, we need pol public policy to address all of those. We're only going to advance as far as we, uh, as we address our weakest link. So do you think that was uh, maybe part of the reason uh, th that the uh, task force was so interested in this report? Does it give them a little bit of the legislative firepower to uh, to say, OK, we have this need now and we're not going to get there on our own. So let's make some changes. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I, I, there's a bit of an irony here because I have to admit when, when my co-authors and I started this report, we'd almost come, we were almost trying to debunk the 1.5 million number. It, it actually seemed a little high uh, to us. So we were, we were hoping that we would get a, a lower number saying, oh, you know, yes, the, the situation 
uh, is dire, but maybe you know the the task force is uh, overestimating it. And turns out we ended up supporting the task force or the task force's estimate. So absolutely, you know, we've had a number of conversations with policymakers at all three levels saying, yeah, you know what, this number is right. And I, I think one of the things that the provincial government can do is adopt many of the recommendations uh, that the task force has made, uh, like allowing duplexes and triplexes as of right, allowing for more density to be built along transit lines, that task force makes 55 recommendations, only a handful of which have been adopted by the provincial government. So there's a long way we can go and, and the Ford government has a blueprint to at least help them get there. Doesn't address everything like those labor shortages, but it's at least a start. Okay, and maybe one final uh, question. It seems like you had a pretty decent reception from the Ontario government. Again, as you said, they haven't done everything that you've suggested, but they're, they're, they're down the path. and. Uh, I don't think anybody would, would disagree that they're uh, uh, certainly pro-development, so something that tells them to build more. They're not going to turn their nose up at that. Um, what about uh, from other corners? Have you uh, have you had other reactions from industry, from business, uh, and uh, to the report? And, and tell us a little bit about how those have gone. Yeah, it, it's been surprisingly positive uh, in, in general. You know, at SPI, we don't shy away from controversy. You know, we will put out reports that not, not necessarily everyone likes. But absolutely, across the board, I, I think we're seeing from you know all political parties, we're seeing from from the business community, a variety of chambers of commerce and so on, you know, thanking us for the report and, and in particular, um, the the sort of regional breakdown so that we've taken that 1.5 million number and said, okay, here's what it means for Ottawa or Essex County or, or, or Middlesex County or so on. So the reception has been uh, incredibly positive. And I think the business community in particular has been positive towards it because they're they're worried about labor shortages. They're worried that if they're not we're not able to build enough housing in the communities in which they operate, they're not going to be able to attract and retain workers. So I think the business community is recognizing uh, the linkages between regional economic development and their success and our ability to to build enough homes for workers. All right, Mike Moffat with the Smart Prosperity Institute. He also teaches at Western University. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Next up, we have uh, Ian Arthur, CEO of Nidus 3D. They 3D print homes down in the uh, Kingston and uh, surrounding area. Uh, and I'm sure he'll have uh, some updates on their plans for uh, world domination in 3D printing. Uh, Ian <laughs> is also the former MPP Kingston and the Islands. How are you today, Ian? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, I'm sure a lot of folks are curious. You know, we had a provincial election a yeah. few months ago. Why make the jump from politics to housing and why 3D printed housing specifically? Uh, I, for me personally, it was time for something new. Uh, it was an honor of a lifetime to, to serve in the legislature. And uh, I met incredible people and got to work with some absolutely brilliant minds. Uh, that's how I learned who Mike was. Uh, through his advocacy for people with autism, and and it was it was amazing. But it was time to uh, kind of be a bit smaller, I think, for a little while. Be in Kingston, uh, focus on family and and that sort of thing, and try and do something that's a little more hands on than what politics was. And uh, that's really what led to to starting Nidus 3D with my uh, partner, business partner Hugh. Uh, we saw a need from two different angles, me from a policy side, working on the issue of housing, and, and he was a small developer and builder, and facing all the obstacles that were just talked about in, in the construction sector. 
So maybe before we get into the specifics of 3D printing and uh, and some questions I have about that industry, uh, tell us a little bit about your company. In particular, you got an exciting project on Wolf Island and a few others. So uh, why don't you give us an update? Absolutely. So we founded NIDUS about two years ago. We, we formed a partnership with a company out of Denmark called Cobot International. They're the ones who are providing us with the 3D printers. And we brought the technology to Canada to both distribute it to, to other builders who might be interested in this area and to get buildings up ourselves and really show that this is a viable technology that can be deployed in Canada. So we started with a fantastic project. It was a partnership with Habitat for Humanity. It's almost finished. We're getting pretty close to a move-in date for families uh, in Windsor, Ontario or just outside of Windsor. Uh, and then we moved on to the project on Wolf Island, which you talked about, which is significant in its own right. It's the first multi-story 3D printed project in North America. Uh, now we've we finished that project or, or at least finished the printing part of it. And we've moved on to our, our most recent one, uh, which is a world first. And we're going to 3D print the first basement part of a building and then two stories on top of it anywhere in the world. Wow. And hey, well, Violin couldn't think of a prettier location for that. So uh, congratulations on those beautiful. projects. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, for those who maybe they've heard of 3D printing, but they, they don't really know what it's about, could you tell us a little bit about um, how the technology differs from what we call a stick and brick houses and um, how what, what, what impact does that have on the cost to actually build a house? Yeah, absolutely. So imagine, I, I think most folks probably now have seen examples of, of small polymer printers that some folks have in their garage or universities might have access to. And we kind of know what the idea of, of 3D printing is, the layering of materials on top of each other until it takes shape. What 3D construction printing is, is a way bigger version of that. So similar looking gantry system, it's kind of like a box and we print inside the, the printable area in there. Uh, inside of it. And our median, though, is concrete, and we're layering it in, in much bigger sort of uh, strips or, or layers than you would do with plastic. And so layer by layer, we're able to, to work off of a concrete pad, and you'll see the walls of the house kind of move up out of the ground 40, 40 mils at a time until you have a structure. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of cool. It's, it's really great to watch initially, and then uh, you realize it's doing the same thing a lot of times in a row, and you kind of uh, move on. So there's a, a materials piece to the overall cost equation, but then there's a labor piece as well uh, when you're trying to build. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And and this is kind of the real promise of of this industry. There's we we've had incredible material advances over the last hundred years. We're building with things no one could have imagined a hundred years ago. But what we haven't done is begin to address the need for process changes, and uh, the the um, ICF, for instance, it's it's a bigger brick. It still requires being stacked. It still requires being tied together. There's still a huge amount of labor involved in this. And what 3D printing promises is an automation of part of the building process, a, a, a small part right now, uh, likely going to expand into the future. But it allows us to kind of lower labor costs associated with building. And then our, using concrete, it's a fairly affordable uh, material right now. It, it isn't experiencing the same price increases that everything else is. But uh, it certainly has the promise of being able to deliver housing at a, in a much more affordable way. Mike uh, earlier talked about some of the policy and regulatory barriers to uh, getting more houses built. Um, what is preventing more 3D printed houses from being built today? <laughs> Honestly, right now, capacity, we are a startup. We're in our first year and, and we certainly intend to scale this technology on, on in a massive way. 
to be honest, all across Canada. Uh, we, we'd like to see these machines because they are part of the solution. They're, they are a small part of it. There's still a huge amount more that goes into building a house. But we need to start implementing these technologies now if we're going to have a hope of, of meeting that number uh, and not not a very long time. I mean, we're talking nine years there uh, with that report that Mike was talking about. Right. And so uh, is 3D printing, you know, a large part, a small part to, to fixing that housing shortage? Is it is it going to be one of those things where it's maybe it's smaller today, but over time it's going to uh, take on more of the burden? What do you think? I, I certainly think so. And I think the scalability of it, the fact that it's automated, the fact that you can have remote support, it allows it to be deployed into communities that would be very hard to access otherwise, or very hard to bring in the skilled labor needed to meet the housing needs in those communities, or even in larger communities like the GTA. So we certainly see it taking a larger piece of the pie as, as time goes on. Uh, I also think it's a really unique opportunity to begin to layer innovations on top of each other. It provides a new way of thinking about how you build and a new way of interacting with those buildings. And we're very excited to see what other companies are able to do with this technology and, and how they're able to build other parts that, that do have to interact with the structure and be able to do that in a new way. Awesome. So if we put on your former hat for a moment, when you were the critic for small businesses, um, yeah. could you talk about what you heard from businesses as it relates to uh, housing and, and the impacts it was having on them with, rec with recruitment, with retention, all those other uh, kind of challenges? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think honestly, the construction sector is in nothing short of a crisis at this point. We are facing the re people retiring, the baby boomer generation who make up a, a huge portion of the, the trades are retiring at a rate and we're not able to replace them. We're not training enough new skilled tradespeople to replace them. So not only do we have uh, significant increasing demand, we're going to have ever increasingly difficult access in, uh, to, to labor. And we are continuing to face the the uh, sort of material pricing volatility that we've seen for the last two years. Uh, it probably will stabilize a little bit, but we don't know where it's going to stabilize. And again, that's going to drive costs up. So when I talk to, to builders and small businesses, it's the same thing. They, they do need more help getting through the municipal approval process. It is cumbersome. It is slow. Uh, it can be adversarial, frankly. So that certainly needs to be tackled from a policy standpoint. But then we do need to begin to introduce technologies that are going to help solve some of these other issues. The price increases for labor, which are going to increase ever more as, as we have fewer skilled laborers, material increases, and uh, just, just the lack of people to get these houses out of the ground. Excellent. Ian Arthur, CEO of Nidus 3D. Thanks for uh, updating us on what your company's up to and, and this exciting new industry. Thanks for having me. We're now going to turn to uh, Andy Coburn, uh, president of the Lanark Leeds Home Builders Association. Hi, Andy. Hello, hello. So uh, have you been seeing a lot of people move into uh, your lovely part of the woods, by the way, uh, for remote work and such? Or um, has there been sort of an exodus this summer as... Uh, some offices start to go back to work? Uh, somewhat, it's it's hard to tell, but uh, certainly from the real estate perspective, over the last few years and including in the pandemic, we see a lot of people moving out from larger centers out into smaller towns just because of the, the difference in uh, house prices. Uh, somebody who's moving from Toronto uh, could sell their home and move into uh, the rural regions and uh, buy a house for a quarter or a third of what they they paid in Toronto and um, 
from a, from the standpoint of uh, having remote workers in the county, I think that there's uh, both in Lanark and Leeds Grenville that there's a push to uh, install fiber optic that's gone through in the last few years, and so both counties are well hooked up to supply that that service for uh, for remote working. It's hard to tell though, just you know, in this region in the summertime, our our populations increase by double or triple just because of cottage country. Uh, but it's harder to tell uh, because people are pretty far flung. Absolutely. Um, so going back to the report I talked about with Mike earlier, um, the call for t by 2031 was that Lanark area needed 7,300 net new homes and Leeds Grenville needed 6,400. Uh, so that's a, a pretty good chunk. What do you think of those uh, predictions? And um, kind of asking the same question I, I spoke with both Ian and Mike about, is it attainable, you think? Uh, I agree with, with with Ian and Mike in that there is uh, there, there are a few problems facing us in regards to meeting that demand. Uh, by, by what my members say to me, everyone is short-staffed. Um, everyone is booking into mid to late 2023, if not 2024, in terms of the projects. Um, we don't have enough builders or laborers in the field right now to be able to to build what is uh, forecasted or what would be required. Um, and in in that respect, I know that there's uh, the the other uh, elephant in the room is the energy efficiency question and how many existing buildings we have and uh, things like aging in place, aging populations that want to stay where they are and doing renovations on existing buildings. So our members are looking at a lot of, of uh, pressure points in the next 10 years. Building uh, thousands of new buildings, we'll be able to chip away at it. Um, are we going to reach the targets? It's it's doubtful unless there's a major interjection of training and uh, new blood in, in the field. So new homes uh, can be pricier sometimes, uh, and, and your area has obviously not been immune to the price increases we've seen in, in Eastern Ontario. Um, are you concerned about what the addition of uh, all this new housing stock might do to the, the home prices in your area? Definitely, and you can already see it that home prices are are jumping up. They've jumped up since 2020, um, and the uh, the amount of work that people are having done to their buildings is also jumped up. This this begets that situation I just mentioned, where our, our members are uh, up to their eyeballs, busy. Um, it is going to affect house prices, and given what's going on in the world, if you, we have to take a step back and look at uh, wildfires and floods and what's affecting the forestry industry. Um, in particular, lumber prices have skyrocketed and have dipped and then gone back up and dipped and then gone back up again. Um, so you're looking at higher prices than normal for everything from lumber to sheet goods to uh, engineered wood and that kind of thing. But then you're also getting supply chain kind of delays with uh, everything from garage doors to fireplaces and that sort of thing. The price of a, of a building in our area is still uh, a little bit lower than in the larger urban centers. But uh, if you look around, you can start to see that little by little, there's a house here, a house there, or a merb here, a merb there, that are bumping up in, in terms of their price. And they're getting the asking prices, which 
I find it's it's funny considering that uh, when I moved to this part of the world 20 years ago, uh, house prices were around 60,000 for this area. And now you'd be looking at 10 times that much for uh, a, a modest house in the area. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about uh, construction material prices. So uh, I've been watching the same thing with lumber, kind of the up and down. Um, but uh, it seems like especially with the, uh, the inflation we've been running lately, it's everything, isn't it? It is. And we we keep a close eye on it. Our national office, the, the Canadian uh, Home Builders Association, uh, is pretty good about bringing in uh, pundits to to give us a forecast on what do material supply chains look like and what do uh, what does pricing look like. So we'll have someone come in from one of the major banks to talk about uh, what are we looking at potentially for the next five to ten years. Um, it's challenging in that. Uh, building a house, and most most of the members that we serve are, are mom and pop, that they've been doing this since they were kids, and their parents did it too. And um, so for them to be looking at uh, the changing landscape of, of buildings and how material prices are, it's what, what's a good thing to see is that a lot of the more experienced builders that we have uh, read the writing on the wall a few years ago. and they loaded up their yards and their barns with lumber uh, ahead of price jumps. But still, that's that's only a buffer. They can only do so much. And so we're all seeing uh, the kind of price hikes and delays that would happen. For example, if, the, if we shut down a site because of COVID, thankfully that hasn't happened very much. But if it does, then you're looking at an itchy contract situation where your, your deliverables might not get there on time. Okay. And uh, last question, we'll end on this. What changes would you like to see from the government, uh, whether that's kind of locally uh, down in your in your Lanark and Leeds area or uh, more provincially, uh, to better support your industry uh, in building the homes for all these people that are going to need them? Uh, like you and Mike said, uh, more support for training, uh, more training programs for uh, construction, uh, for trades. Um, also, uh, blending in that idea of uh, building science and energy efficiency into more programming because that's that's that other looming piece that's coming up. Uh, more support for training building inspectors and bringing more people into that aspect of the industry because that is also that industry is also seeing great attrition from retirement and not enough people coming into it. Um, we need to attract and retain people who will stay with the industry for their lives. Um, in terms of uh, the uh, municipals and permitting and that kind of thing. Uh, there are some good examples around the country of uh, of systems that are are working a little little better. With with taking into account that COVID has sort of pushed everybody back, but I know out in British Columbia, uh, one of our Canadian home builder members, um, they uh, they approached their building office and they went through a process where. They would pre-approve builders to streamline the permitting process. So uh, the builder would have to obviously do the due diligence that would come with that kind of approval. But then it was kind of like they were a trusted builder. And so when they uh, when they put in their applications, the inspector would know, yes, I can trust that this person has all their paperwork and they've done all the uh, crossing of T's and, uh, and, and dotting of I's. Um, that helped them streamline the process a little bit. But we, we need more bodies. We need more people who are in it and doing it and have been uh, well-trained and can 
uh, take up the slack. Uh, it's as simple as that. We just need more people in it. Uh, I've been trying to tackle a couple of project around projects around the house uh, this past week, and they, they have not gone well. So I, I don't think I'm the guy you're looking for. Sorry, Andy. But uh, if I see any, I'll, I'll certainly let them know. Uh, Andy Coburn, Lanark Leeds Home Builders Association. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Phil. And my thanks also to Mike Moffat from the Smart Prosperity Institute. Great guy to follow on Twitter, by the way. Uh, check out that uh, pink back to school uh, jacket there. Very stylish. And uh, as well as Ian Arthur with Nidus 3D. And of course, Andy Coburn with Atlantic Leeds Home Builders Association for joining us today. Be sure to check out Ontario's need for 1.5 million more homes. Uh, brand new report out this summer. Link will be in the show notes. The city of Cornwall. The county of Leeds Grenville. The county of Renfrew. Join us again in October, where we'll be meeting the first ever winners of the Eastern Ontario Business Journal's Fastest Growing Companies Competition. And as always, for important business news affecting Eastern Ontario, stay tuned to obj.ca. Until next time, I'm Phil Gaudreau. Thanks for joining us.